I'm Bill Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Jim Candy and I, the two of us, uh, we have been doing co- ministry to college students our entire time that we've been doing ministry. Uh, whether it was Jim doing high school and middle school ministry and, and, and fleecing all my college students and, and getting them all to do his high school and middle school ministry, or it's uh, the 21 years that I spent working with college students. Um, it, it, we love them. We love college students. For you guys that aren't college students, here's why we invest so much in college students, okay? 30,000 of them are coming into this area right now, or even more than that if you count CU Denver and Front Range and just college-age college individuals. They're coming into this play, into these, these areas, and they've left home. And like Mo said, whether they've left home that's somewhat close, like Louisville or Lafayette, or they've left home from, from Florida, it doesn't matter. They've left home, and they're displaced, and college students, here's what I found over those, all those years, man, they're grabbing for little ways that someone's going to care for them. Because believe me, when they're walking on the CU campus, there's days that they feel like, does anybody even know me? Nonetheless, care for me. And so what we want to do as a church is we want to say we do care for you and we'd love for this to be a little splice of home. We'd love for this to be a little edge of home in your, in your guys' lives. And so, so that's why we go all out and you, you do the bags and, you, and we hope that a student might connect with one of you and maybe even end up in some sort of relationship where they can have a mentor relationship with somebody in this room and, and help them in their walk through college. So we want to walk with students. Now, College students, I want to say something to you guys too. Over all those years of doing college ministry, there was a, a statistic that I held on to that was a sobering statistic. It said seven out of every 10 college students that are actively involved in a college ministry are no longer seen in the church five years after college. Seven out of 10 that are actively involved in, in crew or the annex or Young Life College or navigators or ambassadors or challenge or, you know, you name the, the ministry, the ones that they're super involved in, they're not seen in the church five years after college. And the reason why they're not seen in the church is they never, they never learned what that might look like to actually connect to a church. They never, they never saw the value of connecting in a church. And so what we want to do is help students to go, man, we, we value you. And we want you to learn what it, what it looks like to maybe even value the local church so that when you go off to your, to, to your PhD program or you just add more student loans to your student loans, when you're doing all that, that you might go, I know what I'm looking for in a local church and I want to be involved in a local church. You guys, we love college students. I'll look over here mostly for you guys that are in college, but I know there's some of them are sitting around in this room, but you guys, we love you. And we want you to be connected. And we want you to grow deeper in, in a relationship with Jesus. And we hope that Ascent can be part of that place. Here's what we're going to do today for you guys. They, Brian and Maurice just, just touched on this. Afterwards, right through these, these, uh, th- these curtains right here is a big buffalo. And there's a bunch of, of uh, care packages for you guys. I mean, they went all out, the church did, and gave you guys a bunch of stuff. I mean, I could just pour it out. Oh, there's a plant in there, <laughs> a dorm plant. Hey, my mom's a horticultural consultant. I know how to put transplant plants, so I can put it right back in there. Okay, so there's a plant. You got mac and cheese. You got taco dinner. Come on, all the things that you guys live on, detergent, it's all in there. You guys... I know you use the detergent once every like six months and your, the guys, your sheets, well, you'll never use them, but your, your girls might use them a few times. 
a bunch of stuff in there for you. Grab one of those bags. Put your name in, the, in a basket so we can draw out some beats for you. And then here's what we're going to ask for you to do. If you would stick around for like 20 minutes. Through, on the other side of this wall is what we call the tire center. It's where, where the Sam's Club used to sell tires. And, uh, and, and in that room, we just want to give you guys an update on what we're looking at doing this year for college students. So if you'd stick around for 20 minutes, free Cosmos pizza, go into that room, and we'll give you guys, come on, I just said free Cosmos pizza. Yeah, that's what I thought. Go into that room and we'll talk to you guys about college stuff, okay? All right, let's, let's pray together because God's got something in store for all of us in this room. I know you're going, quit talking to the college students. I'm not in college. We'll talk to everybody, okay? Father, we pray that you would bless this morning. Every single one of us are in one place or another and we need to take a step closer to you. And we do recognize the, the students that are about to walk on that CU campus tomorrow. And we do recognize those days that they're going to be walking and feeling lonely and missing home. And we pray, Lord, that for them and for anybody else, for someone that's new today for the first time, that they would sense a little home around here because you're present here and you keep guiding us into relationships with each other. And I pray that you would continue to do that around here. I pray that we would in those relationships, be able to take a step closer to you and that we would even this morning as we look at your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. So like they said, we're, we're doing this series called Surprise Him. Jim and I introduced this series last, last week to you guys. It's basically looking at the gospel and how generous the gospel is. And we're just going, man, Jesus shocked people. Didn't just surprise him. He shocked people with the generosity of the gospel. And as he pushed his people towards living out that generous life, other people saw it and said, what in the world is all that all about? And Jim and I feel like the Lord has laid it on the hearts of the leadership of this church to say, man, let's go out and be generous. Be generous to our community, to our neighbors, to our city, to our schools. Let's just be generous to them and see, and, 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 and see where that goes. Let's start that direction. And so we're talking to everybody here saying, come on, let's all step into that. We recognize we can't just live life Going home and then work and then school and then church. Homework, school, church. Homework, school. Homework, school. Homework, school, church. You know, where we do it that way. We can't just keep doing that. We've got to actually step out and say, how in the world are we going to bless the socks off of a community? So we're talking about surprising them. And we're looking at passages of Scripture. We're looking at the different stories that Jesus, that Jesus had with his people where he shocked them and then shocked other people by the news that he would share. That they'd say, that does not make sense. That's not like what we expected church to be. That's not what we expected religious people to be. And Jesus is going, now I'm going I'm to do a little paradigm shift for you guys in the way you, what you expect. And we're going to surprise people. So Jim and I are going to be spending some time looking at, looking at some different interactions Jesus had with his people. The first one that we're looking at this week is, is a lawyer that came to Jesus And he said this, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so get that. Jesus is walking from from, uh, Galilee to Jerusalem. He's got a big crowd of people around him. One guy in the middle of all this crowd of people, they're all sitting there listening to what Jesus has to say, raises his hand and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, 
Different people will have different, um, different ways they translate that or they think, what is this guy really saying? As I read that, this isn't the first time someone asked that question to Jesus. And I think we're really the question that's being asked is a question that every one of us asks. It's this, what is the minimum amount required for me to check the box? That's ultimately what that guy's asking. What's the minimum amount required for me to check the box to say I've done it? I'm in good standing with you. I'm, I'm doing okay. Please just tell me what's the minimum amount. I stood up before everybody. What's the minimum amount required? We ask that question all the time. You don't ever ask it verbally out loud. We ask it just internally. You know, a, a boss gives you a job to do at work, and our response inside is, what's the minimum amount required for me to do that job? A teacher will give you an assignment. What's the minimum amount required for me to do that job? Whatever it is, we will always ask that question. Or we'll ask it, we'll especially ask it when we're tired. We'll ask it when we're busy, when we're overwhelmed, when we're not super passionate about it. We'll ask the question, what's the minimum amount required? I mean, think about it. Even in marriage, there's times in our marriages that we're asking that, that you'll, you'll calculate something out. You'll, you'll know that you've got the, the, the third Bronco preseason game recorded, and you're going, gosh, I'd love to watch that again to see if Chad Kelly is really the quarterback that we think he is. And so you want to watch that again, but you're going, what's the minimum amount required of me to give to my wife so that I can go watch this game? You know, how long of a walk do I need to go on? Is 15 minutes enough for me to now just go spend the next three hours watching a preseason game with none of the starters in it? Is that enough time, you know? So, so, so you, we, we ask that question, you know, is, is, what's the minimum amount required? Your parents, your mother's day. Yes, what's the minimum amount required for me to, to just acknowledge my mom on mother's day? Which is a terrible thing to ask. It's your mom, but we still do. You know, anniversary, your parents' anniversary. How's that one? Jackie and I are about to celebrate our 25th on Tuesday, and that's a big deal. You don't have to clap. It's a big deal, but you don't have to clap. Uh, my kids right now are asking the question, what's the minimum amount required? It's a big deal. Am I supposed to, like, make them dinner? Is a card enough? Maybe some flowers? A text? You know? What's the minimum amount required to acknowledge this significant day that if it didn't happen, they wouldn't even be here? You hear that? What's the minimum amount required? You know what another place where you see the minimum amount required? A college student's apartment. They will ask the question, what's the minimum amount required for me to meet the duties of keeping this place clean? Here's why you know that. You walk into a college student's apartment and where you see that what's clean? The middle of the living room floor. The middle of the living room floor is clean. That's the minimum amount required for me to keep this place clean. Now, around the edges is the pizza box with the crust in it, the mac and cheese plate that's hardened with mac and cheese, is the, is the big gulp cup. I'm describing my own apartment right now when I was in college, but it, it, all the, on the, that's the extra. Leave that the middle. That's the minimum amount required. We ask, we, we do that all the time. Now, I'm going to take a slight tangent from here. I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but I'm going to. You know I never take tangents when I preach, but I'm going to take one here. Um, when my fifth year in college, I lived out the minimum amount required. 
my fifth year in college. I, I, had, I, I had one class left at the University of Washington. I was a business major and had one class left. I needed just three more credits to graduate. It was not going to affect my grade point average at all. It wasn't going to do anything for my future. All it was was one class that I had to take to graduate. But here's my problem. At the same time, I knew I had one more semester then to take advantage of $7.50 to play golf on the municipal courses in Seattle because they gave this massive discount to college students. And I was a business major. Opportunity cost. The opportunity to play golf. The cost to this one class. That's plenty. I, I, I weighed it out. I was a good business major. So I did, this, I did the, the golf. I never, never went to class. We get to the midterm of this class. This class was the history of Christianity. Okay? Who needs to know about the history of Christianity? I mean, what, what job would I ever get that I would need to know that? So, 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 so I played golf every day, looked at the syllabus to find what, what, what classroom this is in. You know, I'm going, uh, it's the midterm time, and I go, I haven't even know where we meet. So I, I find that out. I get to the midterm, and the, and the, and the essay that you have to write is, is about the Christian Crusades and, and how that affected Christian history, the Christian Crusades. I'm looking, at them, I'm looking at this, and I'm going, I know nothing about the Christian Crusades, nothing. I didn't even watch Robin Hood, and I think that that has something to do with the Christian Crusades. I wish I would have. I could have filled a whole blue book on that, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about the Christian Crusades. But here's what I did know. Two years earlier, I had taken a Scandinavian histories class, and I read about the Viking Crusades. And I, and I thought, I wonder if that's the same. And so I started to put those together in my mind. I'm going, I bet you I could create an essay about the Viking Crusades and the Christian Crusades. I think I could make something up here. I just got to fill out paper. I mean, we know the professors don't read this anyway. They just see how many paragraphs you've written. And so I, I decided I'm going to do that. I'm going to write this essay on the Viking and Christian Crusades. And for some reason, this is the only essay that I kept from all of college. I'm going to read it to you guys this morning. I'm going to read it to you. And this is it. You talk about checking the box. This was the minimum amount required, okay? Here you go. Now, I've read this once before. If you've heard it before, you know this is good. This is good. Here we go. Here we go. Now, keep in mind as I read this. The, the only thing that the Viking Crusades and the Christian Crusades have in common is the word crusade. That's it. Nothing else, nothing else, but I'm going to make it work, okay? The barbaric tones, I, I'm going to skip into the middle, the barbaric tones in which the crusaders came down from Scandinavia. Now, now, I, there's notes in here from the professor as he's, as he's reading this, okay? I want you to picture it from the professor. He's sitting there with a cup of coffee. He's drinking in coffee, and he's, he's looking at these essays, and he's going, oh, this is an interesting one. Let me read this one. And he reads, he's going, came down from Scandinavia, and he writes, Unclear what you're referring to, okay? <laughs> not sure. Not sure why you think they came from Scandinavia, but we'll, we'll just keep on reading. Um, it, says, it says, leads one to show the secular side of the Crusades. They also had an incredible way of spreading the teaching of Christianity. Although crude, it did work to an extent. And he says in the, in the column here, he says, in the margin, he says, evangelization was rarely a goal of most of the Crusades. So he's right there with me. He's coaching me. He's teaching me a little bit. This guy doesn't quite get it. I'll write a little bit about evangelization. You know, he'll get it. He'll get more. So then this happens. The spread of Christianity from east to west resembled the evolution of the settlers in the United States. I started in on three paragraphs on Jamestown and the, and, and, and the, and the settlers in the United States. This is art. It's art. 
I, I should do a class on this. Just here's how you do this. So I wrote a few paragraphs on that. Anyway, the crusaders pillaged and roamed the streets, and, and this is where it really gets good, okay, and collected monetary items in a very secular fashion. In this sense, the women, the money, the barbaric ways in which the Vikings went about converting really does show secular motives, but the Vikings came from barbaric places in the Scandinavian lands. They didn't know a whole lot of different way of living, and their zeal to spread Christianity while stopping the problems of other religions in Western Christian area in some ways overshadows the downfalls they experienced. That is one long, wrong, run-on sentence is what that is. That's all that is. I have now fully lost the professor. The professor says this, the Viking raiders of the ninth century were pagans. I have absolutely no idea what you're referring to here. Do you mean the Normans? Now he's getting mad at me. He's just getting mad. He's, I'm mocking his class. Here's my great conclusion, the one that sums it all up. Whatever, whether, whether or not the Vikings succeeded is a tough question to answer. The Vikings left their mark. I hate it that I keep saying Vikings in this, in history. But whether it was a good mark or not, it's tough to tell. Their success in spreading Christianity in the Western world was good. However, when the term Viking comes up, the thought of an old Christian monk certainly doesn't come to mind. Their pirate, here it is, their pirate-like image of pillaging, raping, and stealing what they can really overshadows the good they did. I think in some ways they succeeded, but their tactics were so barbaric that in most ways they failed to spread Christianity in a Christian way. <laughs> the professor says, you've completely missed the boat with this answer. The Vikings had nothing to do with the Crusades, five out of 35. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a big red F, a big red F on the front, okay? Here's what I want to know. How the heck did I get five? How did I get five? What part of this did that professor go, ah, he tried, he spelled crusade right seven times, five out of 35. You guys, checking the box, I had to go four point the final to graduate the class, and I did. I mean, I, I took two days off from golf and four point in the final and graduated in the class. So now I know a bunch about the history of Christianity. We'll be talking about that today. Um, <laughs> we all checked the box. We all asked the question. How, what's the minimum amount that I need to do? The problem is we ask it more in the most important part of our life than anything. We ask it when it comes to our relationship to God. We ask it all the time, and you, you want to say, no, I don't, but we do. You'll go to church, and you'll say, what's the minimum amount required of me in going to church? How many times? Once out of four, once out of six how many times do I have to go to church? And that would be the minimum requirement to say, I went to church. We'll say that when it comes to what we give. What's the minimum amount that we got to give? We'll say that when we pray. We'll say that when we read scripture. We'll say that when we need change in our life. When you're looking at your life and you're going, I need to change something. I, I know that this, the things that I'm doing are turning myself away from God. That's the sin in my life that are turning away from the, or the direction God wants me to go. And we'll ask the question, what's the minimum amount that I need to change in order to be in right standing with God? And here's what else we'll do. We will ask, what's the minimum amount that we need to serve? What's the minimum amount that I need to give of my time and of my talent and of my treasures? What's the very minimum that I need to do to be in right standing with you? But here's our problem, you guys. There is no way that we can go extravagant, ridiculous generosity to the city 
and ask what the minimum requirement is. You can't do both. You can't lead with extravagant generosity, with extravagant love, with extravagant mercy, with extravagant forgiveness, with an extravagant message. You cannot lead with that and ask the question, what's the minimum amount that I can give and still be in right standing? We can't just check the box. But see, Jesus was living in a world at that time where they were constantly checking the box, constantly evaluating what are we doing and are we doing enough to be able to be in right standing. And so Jesus comes to these guys and he's going, all right, let's answer this question. That guy asked the question again, so let's dig into this. That guy asked the question, he says, what must I do? The lawyer stood up to him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Picture it, you guys, put yourself in that space. You're the crowd that came together. You sat down. Jesus is in front of a big crowd of people. He starts talking to everybody, and he's, and he's, saying, he's saying all kinds of stuff around the kingdom, and a guy stands up and, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, now that everyone's interested in that one person, that one person standing up, and they're looking at him, and they're looking at Jesus. How's Jesus going to respond to this? And Jesus says, you know the answer to this. What does it say? And the guy says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He quotes what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy. He quotes this passage that, that, that every Jewish kid memorized as a kid. When he said that, he didn't impress anybody. He, none of the rest of the people in the crowd were going, wow, that was a really intelligent answer. That he just said what everybody else knew. We all knew that. You all know, love your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, we memorized that when we were six years old. That's what the rest of the crowd was saying. And he says, he says that. He, and and it, it's, 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 for some, it had to have become rote to them. That it's just, this is what they say. Love your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus is going, yeah, love your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind, and with your strengths. He said that first, and then he said something else that he, he, he wanted to impress Jesus, I think, with this next part. He wanted to say, I have been paying attention. He said this, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. The guy was saying, I was there, or I heard from somebody that was there. When Jesus, earlier in his ministry, took that, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. Jesus took a passage out of Leviticus, love your neighbors, you love yourself, and he said, this is what it means when we're saying love our God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. He linked those two together, and it says, and because of that, we're going to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's what Jesus was preaching. This guy's showing off. He's going, I know that. I know that's what you said. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. Well, Jesus looks at him and he says, you are right. You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Well, now the guy's feeling a little embarrassed. He's the one that stood up. He's the one that interrupted everything. We're all looking at him. And he says, well, I asked the question and I knew the answer. Darn it. Well, here's another one then. He wanted to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The reason why he asked that is because in Leviticus, when he, Jesus was quoting, you love your neighbors, you love yourself, it was talking about your neighbor, a Jewish person to another Jewish person in Leviticus. It's like saying a Christian, come on, a Christian, you, you got to love your fellow Christian. You can't be fighting with each other. And so he's looking at me saying, so are you telling me I got my, my neighbor, who is my neighbor? Is that that person that's just like me? 
Is that that person that believes just like me? That person that looks just like me? Is that what you're telling me? And Jesus in this moment radically shifts the way the religious people saw the command to love your neighbor. And not only did it radically shift their perspective, it radically shifted everybody else's perspective too. And the words that he shares next goes beyond the walls of the church. It goes into the, just the, the world and people started to hear that and they started to tell this story. And 2,000 years later now, I could go across the street, I could go right over there to Safeway, walk into the, to the, to the store, go right up to the cashier and ask that, the, the checker, Do you, have you ever heard of the story of the Good Samaritan? And her, her, his response would be, oh yeah, yeah, that's where you have to, to love and help one another. There's Good Samaritan laws. You guys, what Jesus says right here goes beyond just the walls of the church. This, is, this changes culture. And, and I know that we all hear it, and, and some of you have know this story, and you'll go, oh yeah, I've heard this one. But he, it goes so much deeper than just love someone in need. It goes so much deeper than that. Look at what he says. He says this. So, so he starts in on this story. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. He starts that story. Everyone in the crowd knows exactly what he's talking about. They've been down that road, 3,000 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho, super windy road. People get beat up all the time. They know it. They're sitting there going, yeah, yeah, we know that. You know, my buddy was there just last week. So he's talking about a story that they all know. They're walking down. A guy gets beat up. And he says, now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest passed by on the other side. Now, we've got to understand this. The priest had all kinds of reason why not to touch that guy. The priest is probably going up to Jerusalem, and he's going to do some sort of religious act up there. And he didn't want to be unclean. If he touched this guy that's, that's, that's been beaten, he's going to be unclean. And if he's unclean, he can't, he can't do the job that he's supposed to do at the temple. He'd have to, he'd have to like sit out for a week or something because you'd become unclean too. And so, so the priest is looking at it going, I got a job to do. I can't help you right now. I got a job I got to do. If I help you now, I can't do this job and other people will be affected by that. So I got I to gotta leave him there. Man, he had an excuse like we all do. We all have the, I mean, Jesus is telling this to everybody going, we all got him. There's a really good reason not to help. A really good needs, reason not to respond. Really good reasons not to respond. And he didn't. He said, then the next guy comes up, a Levite. A Levite would have been someone that's also working most of the time in the church. He would have been a religious official. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side too. Man, I'll send you some good vibes, bro. And you just keep on going. I love that, good vibes. I'll send you good vibes. Like that's going to do anything. And so, we're, so he just keeps right on rolling and leaves him there. And then Jesus says, but now, now, now. To the people sitting out there, they're going, okay, so it's not going to be one of those churched people. It's not, going to be, it's not going to be those chumpies that work in the church. It's not Bill and Jim or Chris or, or Maurice or, or Becky or Beth. It's, not, it's Natalie. It's not going to be one of those people that work in the church. It's going to be one of us. That's who Jesus is talking to, one of us. And he says this, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, right then, if you were in the crowd, you'd be shifting right now. You'd be going, oh, oh, don't you dare. Don't you dare make that guy out to be the, the hero in this story. Don't you dare, Jesus. 
See, some of you guys that have some understanding of, of some of the biblical history will know that Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, but it's far greater than that. The Samaritans were, were oppressed. There was, there was, they were enemies. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. It was oppression. It was discrimination. It was racism. It was all of that was, that was happening. A Jewish person couldn't touch a Samaritan person. A Jewish person couldn't talk to a Samaritan person. A Jewish person couldn't marry a Samaritan person. Man, they had rules against even having any encounter with this gross group of people is what they would say. And Jesus says, a Samaritan came by. Now people are leaning forward. They're going, what are you going to tell me about what this guy did? And he says this. He says, now where are we at here? Um, he, says, he, says, he says, a Samaritan, uh, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Wait, wait, he didn't just throw him a couple of bucks. He didn't just do one little thing. He didn't just put a Band-Aid on. He actually put him on his own horse, and he walked while this person rode. This is his enemy. And he's the, he went out of his way. He went not only out of his way, but got him to the inn and stayed the night Stayed the night? Are you kidding me? And then the next day, Jesus pours it on. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Take, he pays him a couple of months' wages, pays him, and says, this should cover all of the stuff that you're going to have to deal with him. And if he starts ordering room service, I'm going to take care of that one too. I got it all. I'll take care of all of it. I'll pay for everything you've got. Anything that happens with him, I'm paying you. The people in the crowd are stunned. Jaws are dropped. They're listening to this going, what in the world? Why did Jesus choose the Samaritan of all people to do this? And Jesus asks an important question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. He asked that right to that lawyer. And you guys, the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. It was that deep, that deep-seated. He says this, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And the crowd sat there. The bar was raised for everybody after that. It wasn't about what's the minimum amount that I can do. It was about, are you ready? Are you ready to love and you're ready to give it all? Because that's what I'm asking of you. The bar was raised. Jesus looked at all of us and he said two things. He said, one, we do not anymore. We do not have the, the ability. We, we do not get to choose who we love and who we serve. We don't get to choose who we love and who we serve. 
It's not about, well, it's just someone that I know or somebody that's like-minded like me. You don't get to choose who you love and who you serve. You don't get to choose based on socioeconomic status. You don't get to choose based on how much money one person has to somebody else. You don't get to do that. You don't get to choose based on race. You don't get to choose based on someone that's the same color as you. You don't get to choose that way anymore. But we're to live, we're, we're to love everyone. And, and, and this is the key, you guys. It makes, it makes them and it makes you and me have to do a gut check right now. It makes us have to do a gut check. Which part of us still holds something that would say, I would rather serve you because you've got money. I would rather serve you because of your skin color. What, what part of racism is still living inside of you? What part of it is? You'll say none. And I'll say, are you sure? Do we need to look at that? Is there any part of you that hesitates one bit? If there is, Jesus is saying, we got to take care of that. To love extravagantly and to meet that need. We got to take care of that. Maurice and Aisha are doing that, that, that Ascent You class on, on racial reconciliation. And you might say, but that's not for me, man. I, I, I've got a lot of black friends. Or I, I, I know a Hispanic person. Maybe this is one of those times where you got to go, what's really going on inside of me? We don't get to choose based on, based on your religion or your politics on who to love or to serve. You don't get to choose based on your sexual identity on who to serve and who to love. You don't get to choose based on enemy or friend on who I'm going to love and who I'm going to serve. Jesus is saying, guess what? It's everyone, everywhere, at all times. And he's saying there are no boundaries around that. Some people here, the here, here at Ascent, we go to Cuba, and, and some people might come to me. In fact, I've had people come to me and say, why don't we just take care of the people in our own backyard, our own neighbors? And I think Jesus would say back, yes, do that. Take care of your people in your own backyard, and then go take care of Willie Santiago and the people in Cuba, because guess what? There's no, there's no boundaries. Everybody, everywhere, all the time. We don't get to choose. And the second one, and do it extravagantly. It's, we're not looking at, at minimum level that we can possibly do, but he's raising this bar to a point that we're going, oh my gosh, how do we do this? He raised the bar and says, extravagantly, love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And because of that, love your neighbor. Man, I love even how he says in, in, in that past, he's going, who was, my, who was the neighbor? He even said, it's not the, your neighbor isn't the person you're going to serve. You are being the neighbor by stepping into the need. I love what Andy Stanley says about this. He's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, and he says this. He says, he says no, so let's, uh, uh, no, let's go back one. He says this. He says, the one who saw a need and met it. Who was the neighbor? The one who saw a need and met it the one who knew the price and paid it, and then who, who didn't talk himself out of it, the one who saw the need and met it, the one who knew the price and paid it, and the one who didn't talk himself out of it. Does that remind you of anybody? Does that remind you of anybody? 
that saw a need and met it, saw people that were so separated from God that they were going to die in their sin. And he saw a need and met it. That one who knew the price, it would take his own life. And he paid it. And the one who didn't talk himself out of it, who sat there sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, do I need to follow through with this? And wouldn't let himself talk himself out of it because he knew he wasn't going to give the minimum amount required for these people that he loved, but he was going to give the maximum amount that it was needed. And then he tells us, go and do likewise. See a need, meet it. Recognize the price and pay it. And don't, we all have our excuses and don't give in to them. That takes sacrifice. That word sacrifice in its root means whole and holy. When we love our God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, we make that passage whole. We put legs on that passage when we love our neighbor and we reach their needs. Tim Hansel is an author that I mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago when I was preaching. He's one of my favorite authors, and he, he says this. I want to finish with this. He says, I believe the world gets to know what Jesus looks like by looking at us, God's people. So I say let's give them a good look. Let's live a life so powerful, so unsettling, so wonderful, so joyous, so giving that our lives wouldn't make a bit of sense if God didn't exist. And now if you would, I'm going to read it one more time, but the, the, I want to... I wanna, I want to think about it now from the perspective of a sent church. I believe the world gets to know what Jesus looks like by looking at us, a sent church, God's people. So I say, let's give our community, our neighbors, our schools, let's give them a good look. Let's live a life so powerful, so unsettling, so wonderful, so joyous, so stinking giving, so, so over-the-top generous in our giving. So gaudy generous, so generous that you're just going, it's not the minimum amount, it's how much can we possibly pour on these people? How generous can we be that our lives wouldn't make a bit of sense, that people wouldn't know where to, what to conclude except that God exists? And that is a bar that has been raised really high. And Jesus doesn't apologize for that. He said, that's the way I want us to live our life. Father, I want to pray that you would help each one of us to, to, to recognize our place, that we are holding on to something, something that keeps us from stepping out and loving ridiculously. God, show us the places in our own heart that we're holding on to a bitterness, or we're holding on to something that keeps us from saying yes to that person. God, help us to recognize the, the times that we're given the excuse to say, no, I'm not going to do it, not today, and that we move anyway. God, I pray that this morning wouldn't be a, a, a message of guilt, but of conviction that you give to me and to each one of us to say, respond. God, we want to love you with, our, with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Help us to meet the need, to see it and meet it to pay the price, to recognize that it costs and that we would pay it and that we wouldn't talk ourselves out of it. God, may we live that way generously for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.